What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Today's episode of the Chase to Must podcast is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Panko Chicken. The new Atlanta restaurant thrives off of a unique spin on Japanese and Western cuisine and is already racking up the awards, winning best-selling taste in the Taste of Atlanta Awards both in 2017 and 2018. So if you're in the metro Atlanta area and are wanting to try something new and good and delicious, Go to Panko Chicken today and tell them that I sent you over. You'll be glad you did, I promise. Panko Chicken, where eats meets West. Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right, welcome back to the Chase Thomas podcast. Monday night here in Atlanta, and on the line right now is debut appearance i made a uh, a joke on the instagrams uh this afternoon i was like one of these two golics will be making the debut on the podcast tonight it was a picture of you and uh, your dad and uh, people had to guess but uh, it's golic jr um is here and honestly are, are we sure you're not the best mike at uh, espn these days you know what? He's got me. It's like anything else. It's how you want to judge it right now based on longevity. I'd probably give it to him. 21 years, however you want to cut it, is pretty impressive, as you know, to make it in the media field. But uh, listen, I'm always going to I'm always gonna vote for myself in this. I like to think I go in there and poke the bear pretty well every day. I think so. You're good. You were a good shot in the arm um, for that show and everything. So I, I'm a fan. Um, what was your dad's reaction when you first got uh, a tattoo was he on board with it uh he was you know what for my dad surprisingly his you know his father was a marine and so that was something that was pretty expressly forbidden in his household he always kept an open mind about it and basically said it's your body if you can live with it forever i'm good with it it's it's fine my mom really broke the ice she was the first one in our family to get a tattoo so i felt Mm. like after that i at least had an ally in the struggle your mom went out there. Okay, I cannot imagine my mother ever getting a tattoo. So I'm trying to envision a situation where that would ever come up. It, does she have one or does she have multiple? Is she getting a sleeve? Is Mrs. Golick getting a sleeve? She's not going to join me in the sleeve anytime soon, okay. unfortunately. But she started off, you know, her and her sister both got had gotten an ankle tattoo at different points in her life. And now I think she's got another one on her foot and then a couple of uh, wrist tattoos that her and my sister got together. So everyone in my family, sans my father, has a tattoo somewhere on their body. So uh, I just happen to have gone a little more out of control than the rest. What's it going to take to get uh, Papa Golic, uh tatted? Won't ever happen. The uh, the you know we we lost his father when I was in college, but the uh, the voice in his head from that man is still too strong for my dad to ever go that route. Just not his style. His tattoos are all scars that he had from surgeries from playing. So I think for him that's more than enough. He's had enough needles in his skin for one lifetime. 
Okay. What do we have to do? Here's the uh, here's the the alternative. Um, I'm not sure there's anyone at ESPN who would look more ridiculous than a sleeve than Trey Wingo. So whatever you can do to get him to roll up those uh, Easter colors, those V sweater vests that he rocks all the time and is able to just poke out a little bit of a sleeve. What's it going to take? We need that. We need Trey Wingo with the sleeve. You know what? I think if you sold him on something draft related, like the, the okay. NFL draft is Trey's maybe Trey's favorite event in sports. He's been a part mm. of our draft coverage forever. His favorite thing in the world is going through the draft prep right now and finding out all these little nuggets of information about the different prospects that are out there and going to be getting their names called at the end of this week. So if you got something NFL draft related, I feel like you might be able to hook him in. Okay. Um, what is the weirdest thing about your dad that nobody else knows? The weirdest thing about my dad that no one else knows. Well, no one else gets to see this, but my dad, for whatever reason, has been waking up at 420 in the morning for going on 20 years now doing morning drive Jesus. radio. And as a result of that, you get pretty tired in the middle of the day. Like, as I found out now, I have to go pretty much every day with a nap. My dad, for as long as I can remember, has fought this with everything in him. And so what it ends up happening is we'd be at home when I was a kid in high school or when I go back and visit now, I live like 20 minutes from them because we're all in Connecticut mm. and you'll be sitting around talking with him in the middle of the day. And instead of, again, just you know sucking it up and going for an hour nap or something like that, he'll fall asleep mid sentence while you're talking <laughs> to him. And so we've made an Olympic sport of stacking bugles and all manner of treats in my dad's open mouth while he just sleeps through every manner of conversation. And then just to compound it, when he's done that all day, we'll be sitting there watching a game late at night or something. It'll be nine o'clock. My dad's supposed to be in bed at seven 30 at this point. That's where he's at. And he'll sit down there and I'll be down there watching the game. And my mom will go up to bed. And he'll go, no, you know what? I'm going to stay down and watch a little more of this. 30 seconds later, he is asleep for the next quarter of whatever that contest <laughs> is. So my dad's battle with unofficial narcolepsy has been long fought and uh, not well fought by him. I mean, you're in this world now, too. Like, how difficult is it just night to night knowing that, like, all of the things that you need to watch are on late and you have to be up early? Are you getting up early and just revisiting film or what? what are you doing to make it all work? I stay up late and watch the games at this point. Like okay. I'm still young and dumb enough and caffeinated enough to where I can stay up and watch most of the NBA games that are going on in the playoffs right now. You know, the 1030 start for the West coast games, I'm probably going to get a half in and then call it quits, but I'm usually in bed around 1130 up around 430. And then I come home and I, I see, I'm not like him. I come home and the first thing I do is go to sleep for an hour. I get an hour nap, I wake up, I shotgun a coffee, and then I get out with the rest of my day after that. It's the only way I can survive now. So you're not groggy, because I hate naps. And growing up, I always hated naps. My mom never could get me to take them. I hate them. I hate the feeling after them. I, I don't like it. I, I will never go the nap route. So, But I'm also the person that gets up early and watches what I need to watch um, from the previous night and everything else. But um, yeah, no, I, I just like your dad with tattoos. That's how I am with naps. You know what? It's one of those things where uh, I, I am happy for you. It was a survival mechanism for me. Like before I was doing Golik and Wingo full-time, I was doing a 4 to 6 a.m. Eastern radio show Monday through Friday. So my alarm went off at 2.45, and if I, was, I tried to go without coffee because I didn't want to overdo it. 
I tried that for about a month and I was an absolute nightmare on air worse than I would have been otherwise at that point. So coffee was a survival mechanism. And so now I operate by the code that coffee in the morning is for survival and my coffee in the evening is a luxury. And I enjoy the latter very, very much. Okay. Um, so let's talk some football. You played offensive line at Notre Dame. You played in the NFL for a little bit. You've, you're, you have a lot of experience in uh, the offensive line world. Um, something I find fascinating is that like we're at a point now in the NFL draft where if I see offensive guard or offensive tackle from Notre Dame, I'm just like, Oh, this dude's going to be awesome. McGlinchey, Nelson, whoever it's like, what just Notre Dame has now become like not RBU, but like O line you where it's just, there's Oklahoma guys where I'm like, Oh no, no, thanks. I'm good on that. But then Notre Dame guys, you're just like, I don't know what it is, but Brian Kelly's figured out how to create these just great, offensive linemen that are going to be great in this league forever. Um, why is Notre Dame especially good at developing offensive linemen in uh, 2019? Uh, coaching. And a lot of those guys that you mentioned all fell under one coaching umbrella. Now, that's not to say Jeff Quinn, who's the current offensive line coach right now, is a guy I've gotten to get to know over the last couple of years and was on the staff as an analyst for the couple of years before this past season where he took over as the full-time offensive line coach. And he did a great job with the guys in there. Alex Bars is going to be a draft pick. Sam Mustafer for them, probably going to get his name called as well. But the foundation for that group and that room was really laid my fifth year, senior year by Harry Heastan, who's the Bears offensive line coach now. For my money, and I, I understand my bias in this, but having been around and seen enough groups and the way they're coached and what goes into it, I do not think there's a better offensive line coach on any level of football right now than Harry Eastand. And the results were there. When he came to Notre Dame, he had been at Tennessee before that. And basically anyone who had spent more than a year with Harry had found their way into the draft. And that went all the way back. He was a coach at the O-line coach at Illinois back in the day when Dave Deal was a prospect that came out of there, the longtime mm, offensive, yeah. uh, offensive lineman for the Giants. Harry coached the Bears when Olin Cruz and Big Cat and all those guys were a part of the group. And everywhere he went, he developed talent in a way that at that position right now is at such a premium. Because in the NFL, you don't have time and you don't have the ability to develop. And quite frankly, most often you don't have the quality of coaching to develop offensive linemen with those constraints. Harry was doing that year in and year out. So everyone had started with Zach Martin, who was a year younger than me at Notre Dame. And it was Zach Martin, and it was Chris Watt, and it was Ronnie Stanley, and it was Zach's brother, Nick, and now it was McGlinchey and Quentin Nelson. This offensive line factory, you know, Notre Dame is rich offensive line history and tradition, but the modern version of it, the godfather is Harry Eastan. And they, you know, I'd build a statue of that man tomorrow in South Bend if I could. I mean, you know you won when an offensive guard is being talked about as the best player in, in the draft. Where it's like, all right, can you? Are you sure you don't want to do this? Like, are you sure you don't want to just take this dude number one? Why not? He's going to be a great player forever. And Andrew Luck, I'm sure, is very glad to have him. Although he already is getting a new offensive line coach in year two, because uh, that he the the offensive line coach in um, Indianapolis, I believe, left. Right? There was some weird stuff where he because that coaching staff was assembled in a very strange way with Reich and. Uh, he wanted his own guy and the offensive line coach, I believe departed for some other place, but that offensive line was really good. So that's, that's going to be weird. Um, let's say you're Steve Kime. Um, what do you do? Number one overall, we've heard a lot of smoke. He may not the Prisco stuff this week. Like what would you do if you were in his shoes with the number one pick and, or Josh Rosen? Uh, I would do whatever my head coach was leaning most towards. And you know, if it's me, 
I'm kind of in the camp of start fresh. You've got a, you, you've got a great guy in Kyler Murray that you can build around that the modern NFL is going to be much more accepting for. And quite frankly, I think can cover up some of your sins. And the more I think about it, this Arizona team is still a long ways away from being good, especially on offense. They didn't protect Josh well last year. You know, outside of Larry Fitzgerald and Christian Kirk, their draft pick at wide receiver, you know, you, I, I should throw their running back uh, in there as well. But outside of those three guys, you know, it's still an offense that struggled to have a really dynamic playmaker or any of their Fitz's best days are certainly behind them. So it, it, there were so many things working against Josh that are still going to be working against whoever the quarterback is. And I think Kyler, because of his athleticism, can erase a lot of those mistakes. And I think that's probably the biggest advantage because Josh Rosen is a damn good quarterback. Kyler Murray's ability to cover up for what the Arizona offense is still going to struggle at for a little bit is probably going to be his biggest selling point for them year one, because as a passer, he's still very accomplished and comes from an NFL offense. So I don't worry about those things, even for a rookie coming into the NFL, getting his first snaps in that. Yeah. And just, I can't get over the pressure rate stuff with Josh Rosen last year, where he played behind one of the worst offensive lines of all time with Justin Pugh and all those dudes, Andre Smith and a rookie center and just got his brains beat in. Like he got pressure to believe in like 43% of his dropbacks and his hit rate was insane. And you just like it, the stories of guys who start off their careers like that quarterbacks who just get their brains beat in right away. Um, they start seeing just ghosts. They start just getting nervous, like the David Carr stuff and everything else. And they're just never the same. I, I would be very hesitant if I was any team looking to trade for Josh Rosen. That's why I would probably, if I was in Arizona, like just take Kyler and ride it out with Rosen and see what happens. You can never like, until you have the right guy, I'm still in the camp of keep throwing shit at the wall. Like, let's see what happens here. If Kyler's the guy, he'll beat out Rosen. It's like the Glennon and Trubisky stuff where they still, they had Glennon and people were like, just take Solomon Thomas. And it's a no brainer. And they take Trubisky, they trade up for him. And then he gets the job anyway. I think ultimately until you have one guy who makes sense and you can build around, you're a hundred percent confident can be the guy. Just keep doing it. Why not? I don't, I don't understand why you wouldn't. Cause you're going to get fired if you don't. Like Steve Kimes yeah. got this is another quarterback from you're getting fired if you're well, wrong. Here. I, I, I mean, maybe he was able to get rid of a coach after one year, That's which true. Blemish <laughs> on the mark of a GM and you might be recycling a quarterback after that. He must know something that the rest of us don't in that. And I, I'm with you. I still think also there is value in having a quarterback that's going to do the same things you are. And in the air raid, Josh Rosen can do that stuff. That's certainly up there. But I'd also like a veteran in the room with those guys. And I think if you were going to keep both of them somehow, I just think for Josh Rosen, you'd still be able to get something on the trade market for him, even if it's not great at this point. And you have so many needs in Arizona, like you said, especially up front. I, I think getting as much capital as you have to work with and trying to turn that into bodies that are going to help you out sooner than later, if you're going to have both those guys, I get it. The, you know, the rookie contracts now. You can afford to do it now more so than ever. You've got a lot of control with those guys. But uh, ultimately, I, I think I think you still have so many needs that if you can flip Rosen for something, and I'm sure those conversations have already been had 10 times over, you've got to pull the trigger on it. Okay. How would you rationalize what's going on in, in Oakland with John Gruden and Mike Mayock uh, over the weekend and sending scouts home and not knowing who to trust? How would you uh, How would you explain that? Uh, relatively normal, it sounds like, from the people who talk <laughs> about it. Uh, unfortunately, this is a story that because it got reported and because it's the Raiders and because Gruden and that has been sort of a traveling circus for the last year, 
we all want to overreact and make fun of it. And we got our jokes off. That's what we do. It's, mm-hmm. it's Twitter.com. That's, that's what we do on here. But uh, overall, you hear stories from other scouting departments. Daniel Jeremiah, who does great work for the NFL Network as their draft analyst, said, in the mm-hmm. modern NFL, there are usually about four people in the building that are privy to the draft board going into that weekend. The Patriots, uh, I, I heard from someone else, have been notorious for – sending home their scouts and not even having them around for these conversations. This is just the paranoia of the paranoia of coaching in front offices in general and football has always been fascinating to me at any level. I can go back to high school and I had coaches that were always looking over to the woods, the parking lot to see if they thought someone was around trying to get something from them during practice. It was, it's the thing that runs rampant, but you've seen it through the years, the sort of uh, bottlenecking of the people that are privy to the most precious information in the building, because you see information comes out. I mean, our people and the, everyone in the media gets it from somewhere. And these teams are trying to control that flow of information. And especially when you've had a regime, regime change, Mike Mayock comes in there. Those are Reggie McKenzie scouts still. Those are guys that are trying to get jobs elsewhere, that could be trying to curry favor, that have any number of reasons why it'd be more than understandable in the game of their life and coaching career to wager some of that information to the outside world. And so if you're John Gruden, you're probably going to fire most of them anyway. That always happens after the draft when you've got these regime changes. So this, to me, while you know indicative of the paranoia that kind of runs rampant through football, isn't overly surprising given the circumstances when you look at it from 30,000 feet. Especially because Reggie McKenzie's in another front office now. He's in Miami, yeah. and uh, yeah, that makes sense. I and like you said, like this happening in New England, there's just a lot of stuff that goes on behind the scenes that um, you just we're not privy to, and we'll never know. And those are little things that other. I I would love to know what other front offices thought about that, where they're like, this isn't really a story, but because like you said, it's John Gruden and Mike Mayock and this group that you're just like, oh god, what are they doing? And I think a lot of it too is just how much pressure is on Oakland this season in particular because they have three first round picks like they have to hit like at once you trade Cleo Mack and there's all this pressure to replace him and you get mocked with uh Josh Allen over and over again as your edge rusher at number three or uh, uh, number four whatever and I I think that's got to be crazy like just if you're John Gruden well not even John Gruden because he's got still I believe 73 years left on his contract so it's not like he's really all that worried about um his his uh job status but if you're Mike Mayock like John Gruden brought you in for this kind of moment like this is Mike Mayock's moment this is what he was uh just waiting for on the NFL network for years and years like this is a shot to like really put together just with this kind of draft capital, like this ultimate team that can contend three to four years from now, because he assembled the right guys, he saw the right talent, he put it all together um, to make this thing work. But um, I could not imagine the amount of pressure on Mike Mayock right now. No, but I, I think some of it's made easier by the fact that I have a feeling John Gruden has a fairly large say in who gets picked based on the fact that Oakland handed him the keys. Like when you give a dude a 10-year contract, and you know that a move is happening, and you know that amidst all this turnover, he's clearly the one thing they've invested in that's going to resemble stability while they make this move to Vegas. That's got to ease it a little bit, because if you're that guy's guy, and you just don't go against him too much, and don't screw it up too much, and Mike did a great job at the NFL Network. I, you know, I got to know Mike when he was calling the Notre Dame football games for NBC and was a part of that. And, you know, he's, he's been a guy that I really enjoyed knowing for a long time. That being said, when you go into this situation, yes, Mike Mayock is the GM, but we see all the time 
the power brokers, some of these coaches end up being the ones with the most influence and the GM maybe gets blamed, but I think in Mayock's case, he's going to get a little bit of leeway in this as well, just because everyone kind of understands what the power looks like in Oakland right now. Why is it so hard for offensive linemen to transition to the NFL? Uh, you don't have as much time as you used to. Like since the new collective mm. bargaining agreement went into play, you don't have two a days now, which is a big blow for those guys. You don't have to padded two a days, I should say. You have a walkthrough in that second practice on those schedules. You don't have as much time in the off season, and offensive line is just one of those positions, and all of them are to an extent. But when you have such a demand for cohesion among five different people that have to all work together, and then you've got to incorporate tight ends, and then you've got to incorporate running backs. It makes it difficult to get as good as you need to without the benefit of reps. You couple that with the fact that college offenses look different. There are so few places that are running true zone schemes. So much of it's hurry up. So much of it's two-point stances that you see a lot of raw ability come out in the draft. But just like we talked about, you know, in, in college, you can look to a few places. You know, the schools that I trust that are really going to coach offensive line well are essentially Alabama, Georgia, Wisconsin, Notre Dame, uh, Oklahoma, you could throw in there and a select few others, Boston college. I'd throw in there as well, North Carolina state, but their offensive line coaches at Louisville now. So their offensive line is going to get better in a hurry. Like once you look around and see where these guys are consistently coming from and you start to trace the names, that's who you end up trusting. Cause a lot like quarterback, you just don't have the time to get these guys as good as you need to. And in a lot of instances in the NFL, it's different. If you're not performing well enough, they'll cut you and sign somebody else. So I, I think that's what makes it difficult is you just don't have the time anymore. And on the college level, you're not having that position developed as much because of the nature of college offenses now. Is there a favorite scheme you like to watch for offensive linemen? Is there anything that you like to watch guards do or centers do in games where you're just like, that's that's my shit? I love outside zone. I I, I, okay. I, I, I I have a criminal addiction to outside zone. That's why I mentioned NC State and, and what they had been doing uh, under a prior regime. They coached outside zone blocking about as well as any unit in the country. They were a joy to watch. It's almost exclusively what they ran. And, you know, you just like to see because outside zone is something I ran a lot of. And while it is an eraser for a lot of the things that defense can throw at you because in theory you're blocking areas, it's about working well in combination. It's about putting your eyes and your head in the right spot. And so few people actually do it well. You see it taught atrociously some places, and it's, it's, it should be tried as a crime in my mind. But when mm. you see it taught and executed well, it's such a joy to watch. And it, it's one of those things where it, it, because it's the position I played and because I was coached by the best offensive line coach in football, I feel like I know a fair amount of, what it's supposed to look like. And so when you see guys really straining to do that and you see that it matters to them on tape, that's always indicative of good coaching and of players that actually give a damn about what they're doing. So it, just for my familiarity, outside zone, something I always really enjoyed watching. Which team uh, in the NFL right now has the best sneaky offensive line? The best sneaky offensive sneaky line. good yeah where you're just like you've watched them they're like i don't know if a lot of people know like obviously not like the rams the teams that just or the pats but like you watch them and you're like i like this group this group could grow this group could i, I like it um well i'm trying to think the one i called going into last year just because 
obviously taking Quinn was going to make you look really good really soon, but the fact that they were yeah. getting Ryan Kelly back from injury the year before, who is one of my favorite centers in the NFL, I thought was going to do really well. Man, honestly, I'd say I'm just I'm looking through teams right now. Trying to pick out a sleeper is tough just because the, the good coaches tend to conglomerate in so many places. Mm-hmm. But I, you know what? I'd say Sneaky Good that probably started getting credit maybe a little bit too late was New Orleans. They were able to stay healthy. Yes. They're going to deal with the retirement of Max Unger, which is you – know, he's, he's a guy. You want to talk about sneaky great player. I was fortunate to be mm-hmm. in camp in New Orleans twice and get to play with Max. Such a smart guy such an ex- a savvy veteran presence in the middle of that offensive line was a part of the Super Bowl Seattle offensive lines that were the last really good ones there that went on. So I, I really like the Saints. I think Teron Armstead, when he's healthy, is one of the you know three or four best left tackles in football. He's an ungodly athlete. He puts his feet on guys in a way that so few people can. I would go them and the Bears. Like The Bears' offense was designed in such a way, too, with Matt Nagy, where it was naturally going to take hits off the quarterback, but I think they gave up the fewest pressures in pro football last year. Yeah. I don't think that's a made-up stat. And no, I think that's, when you look that's at, right. And I, I, So I think when you look at the pieces in play on that team, too, you get Kyle Long back healthy. I, I think Cody Whitehair can move around inside. I think James Daniels, who played some guard for them last year, is going to make a really good center for them when they move him over. He was another one. Great zone center out of the school like Iowa that coaches the hell out of that position with Coach Farron. So, and again, I'm super biased, but Coach Eastan there, going into his second year with these guys, they're going to understand what he's teaching. The benefit of reps with him can't be understated or can't be overstated, excuse me. And I, I think that group is going to go from being a strong group to being a dominant group sooner than later if they stay healthy. So the weird stuff with NFL offensive linemen and just trying to forecast how guys are going to do it. But like, it seems like there is one offensive line coach that's been a punching bag for years now. And he's uh, with the Raiders, Tom Cable. Is there anything about him? Like you're, you stress the importance of good coaching. Why are his offensive lines so bad? Is there anything about his coaching style that makes you think, oh, that that's why this is never going well? I don't understand why Tom Cable offensive lines are always bad and also why he always just keeps getting jobs like what what is the disconnect there what are, what are people who don't understand real quality offensive line play what what are we missing i think tom cable the mo that i've always either heard or understood was tom cable is one of those guys that prioritizes tempo and moving more than maybe the technique that's necessary to do well at the position and for a long time when it was in seattle he had this real weird kick where he almost seemed to relish in the idea of turning former D linemen into offensive linemen. He liked those athletes at the position, I think more than guys that could actually play it at a high level. And part of that's coaching part of that's the way that they structured the way they did things in Seattle. Like that was a place that did not put a premium on spending draft capital on offensive linemen ever since they dealt max there. And they sure as hell weren't going to pay guys. And so when you combine that mentality with confidence in your O-line coach to not successfully turn D linemen and athletes into competent O linemen, I think that ends up being the downfall. So it's just, it, it, it's a position where unfortunately being good isn't sexy. And maybe at times, you know, Tom Cable has been a victim of that, but it, it, it's undeniable. I, I just don't think, and I worried as soon as I saw him going over to Oakland because I liked, you know, I, I liked the guys on that, uh, on that offensive line. 
especially when Kelechi was still there with that group and him and Donald Penn and Rod uh, uh, and their uh, center, whose name I'm blanking on right now, but is one of the higher paid guys in the league. And I saw him go over there and I go, well, considering you just took Colt Miller in the first round, who should not have been drafted there anyway. And now he's going to be with Tom Cable. I don't, I'm not inspired by a ton of confidence in what's going to happen there. Yeah, I, I don't either. And I, with Derek Carr and just the amount of money you've invested there and him just being captain checkdown last year, like I don't imagine it's going to get any better with a bad offensive line. You can get away with stuff like that when you have Russell Wilson who can make plays outside. And uh, Derek Carr sent that quarterback. So we'll have to see how that goes this year. But maybe that's why they're interested in Kyler Murray, where they're just like, you know what? Um, this is the only way this works is if we have a quarterback who can run for his life and play behind our bad offensive line. Um, Todd McShay, who I love a lot, ESPN, your colleague, he said Dwayne Haskins is the most natural passer in this draft. Um, do you think that's true? Yeah, I'd say so. I, I, I'd say it looks pretty effortless with him. Uh, I I think he does everything pretty naturally. He throws on the run pretty well naturally. He throws a nice deep ball, which is a huge indicator of uh, and predictor of success at the next level for a lot of guys. And uh, again, you know, was was coached in an offense where – you had an NFL guy manning the helm and Ryan Day who's the head man there now. So, yeah, I, I think he does everything pretty naturally well there for the most part, considering he was a guy that was in his first year as a starter this year. So everything was new to him at game speed. Yeah, it, um, he, I like him a lot. I just don't. And you know what? He seems – he just seems like he knows – he knows where he should go. He knows that, like, look, I I would rather not go number one because that playing behind the Cardinals offensive line and everything else would get me killed. My career would be bad. Like he said, fit matters more than draft position. And that might just be talk, but I think he's probably been advised by the right kind of people. And if you listen to Urban talk about him um, this week on The Herd, or maybe it was last week. Yeah, it was probably late last week. But he, he mentioned that, you know, he needs to sit. Like, he's good. He just only has a year of football unders but like 12 13 games like he's just a kid that can be really good but he needs to sit that's why i just want him to go to the giants he grew up a giants fan all of it makes sense giants just do it i swear if they take daniel jones at six or 17 god i I just i I can't wrap my head around it yeah so i I think there's value clearly the connection with eli manning and the manning family is something they value he's a cut guy and when you put all of those things together Maybe if there is a coherent thought process and Dave Gettleman, who's quite frankly, word to the public, I'm not overly inclined to believe at this point. Maybe the idea is we won't, we can teach him the exact same thing we've been doing with Eli. We think the skill set's similar enough and that'll help ease our transition in a lot of this. That's, that's kind of what I'm trying to piece together at this point is that, you know, we've seen there's value in that portion and not having to have a different scheme for the quarterbacks in your room, especially a young guy who, you would like to learn under the rain, you know, the sitting, uh, the sitting quarterback and the current starter and the veteran Eli Manning that you think still has a couple of good years left in him. Maybe all those things can be true. It still seems like a reach at se- at six or seventeen, however you cut it. Yeah, I mean, uh, Daniel Jones might be ready to go by the time Saquon Barkley has arthritis in both of his knees. So, um... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's a great listen, strategy. Yeah, you you uh, say so you worry about that and. Quite frankly, it's always going to be however the performance of every quarterback not named Baker Mayfield in last year's draft class ends up doing because Saquon can do everything he wants. If they don't end up with a quarterback, none of it's going to be worth a damn bit of nothing. 
And Saquon will probably be a Hall of Famer. He'll probably be a Hall of Famer with a shorter career if he has to keep going at the rate this Giants offense is going to, where Dave Gettleman is daring everybody to stop the run. And quite frankly, he got every bit of the support he needed from the Patriots Super Bowl run, where they lined up in 21 and 22 personnel and ran the ball down everyone's throats. I pictured Dave Gettleman in a dark room somewhere with a glass of scotch, just nodding menacingly to himself watching that Patriots team run through the playoffs, validating everything he believes about modern football. Yeah. I mean, the Patriots off at the line, that was like one of those weird things where it's like, Sonny Michelle's just got these wide open holes and it's hard to figure out like who, how much of it was just schematic, how much of it was just good playmakers and everything else. But um, yeah, that like some of the holes that the Patriots offensive line uh, were able to open up, especially against Kansas City were uh, pretty insane. Um a couple quick things, and then we'll get out of here. Uh, who would you be no- more nervous about paying over the next couple of years, Dak or Jared Goff? Um, I would probably say Dak just because of everything mm. around him. Like Jared Goff is going to have stability, which we've talked about fit a number of times already on this. What Sean McVay and company have done there to support Jared Goff, the way that they've built around him, creates such an inhe- a healthy environment. It's the anti-Josh Rosen, quite frankly, where that guy going back to a time at UCLA had three offensive coordinators and has had nothing but turnover and has reaped the anti-benefits of that. Sean, you know, it's been the complete opposite of it in Los Angeles. So I'd say you know, for that, Jared Goff, I think maybe is a better pure passer and Dak. Dak does a lot of things really well, but it, we've already seen, you know, they moved on from Scott Linehan. You don't know what the future looks like for Jason Garrett necessarily, but Jerry's hell-bent on paying the guy. I just think that as that offensive line gets further away from its perfect form and you get further along in this, the situation's not going to be as consistent as the one that Jared Goff's going to be in. So I, I'd probably be more concerned about Dak. Am I crazy for thinking the Chicago Bears are finishing last in the NFC North this year? Uh, yes, I think you are crazy. I, I, I think okay. so long, I, yeah, <laughs> no, I, I think you are crazy. Listen, I, I think the Vikings are going to bounce back. I think that's going to be a better version of a football team closer to the one that we saw in 2017 than the one we got that grossly underperformed with Cousins at the helm. They'll benefit from another year together, but I, I, they can't be last in a division that involves a lion. I, I have no reason at this the lines point. are me better. Like I'm, I'm buying a lot of, I'm gobbling up a lot of line stock. Like I like Gerard Davis a lot. I like that group. Look at year two with this guy. I, they shouldn't be this bad. Like with Matthew Stafford and this group, Kenny Galladay. Um, maybe the president of Kenny Galladay Island now. Danny Amendola needs to get off Instagram. Shout out to Julian Edelman, but him, Marvin Jones, Galladay. Like I like that group now they just make more sense with what they want to do carry on johnson i'm a big fan of i i just they signed trey flowers like this seems just gonna be better like i just don't think we can undervalue just a team losing vic fangio and replacing him with chuck pagano a year out of football like i i really think if that defense takes a huge step back and trubisky has to do a lot more and that offensive line is not as great as it was eddie jackson's not for real as the best safety in football like there's just there's so many red flags with that team, like where it just felt like everything was in their favor last year. And they, I, I'm not a Trubisky believer. Maybe that's more of what it is than anything else. And if that defense takes a significant step back, which I think is a distinct possibility this year, I, I don't know. I'm out. Like, oh, I think the safest bets are the Packers, the Vikings, and the Lions. The Lions just can't be bad. I think no, they have too much talent to be bad. No, as, a, as someone who knows a lot of Lions fans, I can assure you the Lions are never a safe bet. 
I love Matthew Stafford, the competitor, but Matthew Stafford is a volatile stock, even as mature as he is at this point. That offensive line, while it's gotten better, and Frank Ragnow was a good pick on the inside, and I'm with you, on Johnson is an absolute dog. Weirdly long arms for a running back, which is in no way correlated to anything production-wise, but has always just sort of freaked me out. All those things seem like it should make sense, but it's still the, it's still the Lions, and I have that hang-up. The Bears absolutely will have a correction on defense. Defense is the hardest thing to replicate production-wise year in and year out. Offense is always a much easier predictor. That being said, Mitch Trubisky, another year in that offense. Matt Nagy knows what he's doing with that group. Like I said, I think that offensive line is going to take a step forward. It's going to continue to take a lot of the heat off them. And even if the defense takes a step back, you still have two or three of the best linebackers in football. Akeem Hicks might be, even after a Pro Bowl year, the most underrated interior defensive lineman in the NFL. They won't turn the ball over as much, but that's still going to be enough of a group to make them a nightmare for the team. I, I would still have the Lions in last place in that division. Okay. I Just back-to-back last place years just doesn't – well, Patricia's got to be gone. If they go last back-to-back years, especially if they're firing Jim Caldwell, hoping to make that jump, uh, not a good look. Um, but we'll, we'll see. Um, last thing, and then uh, we'll get out of here, man. Um, when your dad, Mike Golick, is on the podcast next week, what uh, should I ask him to throw him off? What should you ask him to throw him off? Um trying to think of the one thing well if you want him to shut the bot pod if you want him to hang up the phone on you i would advise yes. you to not make the mistake of calling him bob because my uncle bob who also longtime professional okay. football player you know two-sport all-american at notre dame was on saved by the bell the college years and played mike the ra so the amount of times my okay. dad accidentally got called bob is the biggest turnoff for him and will immediately shut him off for you that being said if you want to throw if you want to throw him off or get him off on a tangent ask him about the new driver he got my dad got suckered into one of those infomercial drivers called the gx7 that's supposed to straighten out your drive and fix all these things he went on he like you know how there's those infomercials and they say find out more on our website and you're like i'm never gonna do that he did that he went and watched a 15 minute infomercial on this website and <laughs> ordered this driver off the internet. And all he does is talk about how he's going to hit it off the deck and use every buzzword from the commercial to do that. Mm. So if you want to get him off on a good tangent to start, just ask him how he's been hitting it off the deck with his GX seven. <laughs> Are we sure he wasn't half asleep or he was mid nap and he just like, he slept by instead of sleepwalking. He just, he didn't know what he was doing. He got caught in a mid afternoon infomercial. I wish I could I wish I could do that, but let me just say mm. he processed the information from this infomercial. He was a marketer's dream. He had all the talking points down. <laughs> if he did that in his state of sleep, then I want him to do radio in a state of sleep from now on because his retention was unlike any other time I've ever seen it for him. Okay. There you go. Um, Mike, this has been great. I really do appreciate you taking the time, man. We can listen to you every morning. How early can people listen to you on the radio? Six a.m. Eastern. We are six to ten a.m. I am a, a full-on big boy with Dad and Trey now, so we're there six to ten a.m. Mm-hmm. Eastern Monday through Friday. Come check us out. I'll be uh, doing a draft show on Twitter as well during the NFL draft this upcoming weekend. So maybe check that out as well too. It'll be on all of ESPN platforms and the NFLs as well. It'll be a good time. Me, Mina Kimes, Jason Fitz, Field Yates, the whole crew. It's good people. Field's been on the podcast. The nicest, happiest person I've ever had on this podcast, I think. It's un- it's unbelievable. Field is the purest individual that we have at ESPN. Yes. 
he is still somehow one of the guys and he has he has a true face made for te- you know he stretch he doesn't have a face made for television he has a body made for the burberry what? catalog like he mm-hmm. is the he is everything that you have ever seen in the airport stores that sell high-end clothes. He is all of their mannequins. <laughs> but he embraces it. He somehow doesn't come off unlikable. Like every other guy who do- who dressed and like had the situation the field did, you would you would just naturally be like, ugh. But like you talk to him and you're like, this dude's the best. How can anyone not like this guy? He's actually likable, and you actually kind of get mad that he's likable. Oh, I know. He's listen. He's got it all, and that makes me upset. And I still can't be mad at him, which tells you exactly how great of a guy no. Field is. So I've got a T-shirt with a face on it. That's you know that's the mm. highest form of uh, I think flattery and praise you can have for someone. So Field is that dude. Okay, I'll say my my ESPN favorite is Beth Moans. She was in the podcast. She's incredible. Love oh. Beth Moans is she's the goat. She doesn't get enough credit for being the goat. And I was very upset she didn't get the Monday Night Football job. That's that's who I wanted. I wanted Beth Moans and Rex Ryan. There's still a possibility for the fall. Let's not rule it out, folks, because I don't know where it would go. Maybe we can get you in there. We'll see what happens. But um, no, Beth is fantastic, and uh, yeah, field fantastic. A lot of great people at ESPN. Mina Kimes on there. Yeah, it's great stuff. So listen to Golic six to ten Monday through Friday. Um, Thanks so much, man, and I, and uh, we'll have to do this again soon. Absolutely, man. Appreciate you having me. And that'll do it for today's episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast. I uh, just want to remind you guys, if you like today's episode and you are subscribed on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, I would really appreciate if you could take a second, leave the show a five-star rating and a review. If uh, you're not an Apple Podcast listener, remember you can find the show on Spotify, TuneIn Radio, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play or wherever else you get your podcasts, uh, be sure to check out chasethomaspodcast.com where you can access all of my previous episodes and also find all my writing. I'm writing there fairly often. And also follow me on Twitter at chase underscore Thomas and like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash chase Thomas writer. Uh, thank you for your support and we'll be back with another episode very soon. Thanks guys. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.